I'm Ben Easter, and you're listening to the Shift to Freedom podcast, the podcast that gives you the mindsets, strategies, tips, and tricks to live your freedom and love your life. If you're here, I suspect that you have a total badass inside you, but chances are that you haven't let it play full out yet. Maybe you've been told not to, that it's too much, maybe you've been worried about what other people will think, or maybe you just haven't made the space to shine. If any of that sounds familiar, you've come to the right place. Each week, my co-hosts and I will be exposing the lies that keep that badass chained and, more importantly, sharing the tools to help you break free and share that most authentic you with the world. So, if you want more freedom, possibility, or courage, then I'd invite you to take a deep breath, get curious, and listen carefully for your shift to freedom. Hey there, freedom seekers. Ever wonder about the hero that lives inside of you, ready to conquer the business world? Well, if you've been listening to our show for a while, then you know that we love exploring hero myths and using them to better understand our own heroic journeys. I wanted to make these stories even more actionable for you, so we built a way for you to uncover your business superpowers, avoid potential pitfalls, and see your entrepreneurial journey in a whole new light. Ready to discover your business owner hero type? Check out the show notes or head over to lucidshiftcoaching.com forward slash quiz to take our free quiz and learn which heroic energy you embody in your business. It only takes a few minutes and it's free. Your heroic journey awaits. So I am here with my lovely wife, Paige, and we are talking today about the symbols that we can learn from the story of Snow White and the Seven Dwarves as told by Disney, but we're going to reference some of the, the grim fairy tale as well. It's really interesting for us to explore these Disney movies, these Disney classics together, because what we're getting to do is really look at what the human psyche has connected with over the years. And so think what you will about the Disney stories or whatever, but they, these stories have survived for a long time. And so uh, we're going to be exploring a little bit about what is going on there that we explore. And I'm so excited to talk to you, Paige. Welcome. Hey, husband. <laughs> so I'm really excited to talk about Snow White. Ben and I really love talking about Disney movies, and we're always on the lookout for different metaphors and things that we experience and consume as far as media goes. So we decided to start from the beginning. So Snow White came out in 1937, and there's like, you know, discussions around the Disney fairy tales where the princess gets the prince at the end. And maybe that just like doesn't fit in with our contemporary narrative. And so people kind of reject Disney stories because of this. But the story has really transcended time for like a really long time. The first time it was published was in 1812, the Grimm Brothers fairy tales. I think it's interesting because even at that point, the Grimm Brothers were collecting these stories. And so if they captured it in 1812, it had already been around for a really long time, being told in folklore and folk stories, right? Yeah, exactly. And the Grimm Brothers fairy tales were originally published in German also. So we're taking a story from a different linguistic and cultural context and bringing it into our cultural context. So some of the some of the parts of it just kind of get like lost in translation. But like you said, like there's a lot of these kind of concepts where we see the same kind of tropes or archetypes showing up over and over and over again in these different stories. And I think that Snow White is one in particular that has a lot of these human transcending metaphors and tropes in it. And so let's talk about some of them, because I think what's really interesting about these and the way that we can use them to shift into freedom 
is to listen to what these stories tell us about humanity and about ourselves and to look at some of the metaphors for them. So let's give a quick overview of the story just for for anybody who doesn't remember. I'm going to quickly run through it, Paige, and then you let me know if I miss anything. But just a refresher for anybody who hasn't seen the movie in a while or if you haven't seen it, what rock have you been living under? The story of Snow White is the action begins with the evil stepmother, the queen. She checks her mirror, mirror, mirror on the wall, who's the fairest of them all. And the mirror usually tells her it's her. And then lo and behold, there's another one who's born who's fairer than she is. And that's Snow White. And Snow White is so named for the the snowy white color of her face and the raven black color of her hair. Uh, She's young. And so the evil queen puts her into slavery. This is where the story opens and she's singing, she's connecting with nature. And then she's ultimately cast out because she's tried to, how does she get cast out, Paige? It was, um. The huntsman. Oh yeah. The queen told the huntsman to go kill her and come back with her heart in a box. And then the huntsman just couldn't do it. She was, she was too beautiful, too precious. And so he brought the heart of a boar back instead. And then Snow White finds the the dwarves. She stumbles upon this cottage and she says, well, you know, I'll, I'll clean the I'll clean the house and maybe then they'll let me stay here. Obviously, there are some filthy people living here and uh, <laughs> which they were. And then the dwarves come home. Meanwhile, the queen discovers that it was a boar's heart because the, the mirror tells her that she's still not the fairest one in the land. And so then she sets out to enact this other kind of sort of vengeance and remove Snow White from the, the story by poisoning her. So she masquerades as this this old crone goes and tries to get her to eat this poisoned apple. And then Snow White eats the poisoned apple. It puts her into a, a deep sleep where she can only be a- awakened by love's true kiss. The end of the story happens, spoiler alert, where the prince comes by and in a very sort of date rapey fashion kisses this lifeless form because she's just so beautiful and she wakes up and then the dwarves chase off the old queen masquerading as the old crone. She gets struck by lightning and is never heard from again. All right. Did I miss any major parts there, Paige? I think that's pretty good. Yeah. Yeah. That's pretty good. Now you researched the Grimm's fairy tale version too. So are there major differences between the Grimm's version that we should talk about versus the, the Disney version? One of the differences from, like, just, I'll just kind of try to go chronologically. There's no wishing well that she sings by in the beginning. It goes straight to her being banished by the huntsman. She finds the dwarves home. And then instead of trying to kill her once, the queen actually tries three times. The first time is by putting a barrette in her hair. And the second time is a ribbon around her neck. And a third time is she eats the apple and she successfully tricks her the third time because the dwarves keep telling her like, hey, the queen's going to come back. Like, don't trust anybody. She tricks her the third time by poisoning the outside of the apple and then eating a part of the inside of the apple at the same time that she gives Snow White the poison part. What are the other two attempts? The other two attempts were a comb in her hair and a ribbon around her neck. And so the third one was meant to be tricky so that you couldn't see it on the outside. Then Snow White is put into a beautiful glass coffin and a prince drives by and, well, rides by on his horse and decides that she's the most beautiful thing in the world. Also, in the Grimm's fairy tale version, she's seven, which is really interesting because it's quite young. But he decides he's going to take her back to his kingdom. And then as he picks up her coffin, the coffin like either falls or gets bumped and the piece of apple comes out of her mouth. And then Snow White and the prince decide to get married And then the queen comes in her envious rage to the wedding and they have these 
<laughs> shackles or iron shoes that have been sitting in a fire and they make the queen dance to her death wearing these iron shackles, which is quite grim. Pretty brutal. I can I can understand why that didn't make it into the Disney, the Disney version. <laughs> right? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So this is interesting stuff, right? Uh, because again, take the story out of it and let's look at the symbols, right? Because the symbols tell us things about ourselves and our human challenges. And I think it's really interesting to think about kind of the rising action of this is that there is a, a well-established of age woman who is very vain, wickedly vain, because all she cares about is being the fairest of the land. Yeah, which is really interesting because it's this kind of thing that I, I see us like in our world as humans kind of fighting against something that is inevitably going to change. Like you can't perpetually be the fairest one in all of the land because at some point you will age. And this to me is like kind of the epitome of this woman's demise this like intolerance for something that's necessarily like going to happen. Right. And and it's also interesting because there's, I think this intrinsic pursuit of being the best at things that we have and the, the natural tension that happens when we can't actually be the best. And e- even if we do make it to the top of the top of the field, like think like Olympic gold athletes, they don't stay there because the body naturally ages and I love that you actually have the seasons in the background moving from spring yeah. to winter because because that's what we're basically what we're fighting against. Why these stories, I think, stick around is because we all of us have a little bit of this resistance to growing old and dying. And what the queen is dealing with is the first kind of signs of that is that she's no longer the fairest of the land. And that is like the beginning of the end of the kind of the human, the mortal coil, so to speak. Mm -hmm. And meanwhile, here comes spring. And so winter is like resisting spring showing up. And I think that's why she's also so young, seven years old, is that because it's the beginning of life. Totally. And also, I think all of this is just kind of a testament to like the impermanence of everything in our world. Nothing is permanent, like what's always changing and being resistant to that change. One, it's pointless, but two, it causes a lot of misery. Like, molten shackled death <laughs> for the for the queen you know like a really uncomfortable way of going oh interesting I, I didn't even connect the dots but if you think about the way that she dies she's dancing herself to death how does that feel like the hamster wheel you know what i mean the, uh, this right? uh, this constant pursuit of success she literally is killed kind of the way that she lived so to speak it's very appropriate i would i wouldn't have made that connection i was thinking about the queen's outsourcing of the death of Snow White and like the symbolic nature of that, believing that somebody else can be the solver of your problems. Mm, With the huntsman? Yeah, the huntsman. Yeah, I think that's like a really fascinating because he isn't successful because he doesn't share the same like values as the queen. Oh, yeah. Interesting. Which is also another important lesson for us. Like if we're going to have a teammate, we need to make sure that their values aligned with us, right? (laughs) Because if you wanted something done right. Oh, and there's the rightness, right? Like right is in values alignment. So if you want something done to your own value standard, then you, you got to do it yourself. And that's what she then does. Right. Or enroll somebody who's like invested in the same kind of world as you. Right. She doesn't even ask. She just demands. Yeah. Isn't there an evil queen anonymous or something like that, where she could go find some other evil queens to (laughs) can't they do each other's dirty business? Obviously they don't want to get their hands dirty, but 
But I think about it in terms of like leadership too, where in contemporary corporate structures, I mean, it feels like it's changing more and more today, but some like leadership entities just being like, okay, now go do this. And then people on the other side being like, well, I guess I have to, because that's what I was told to do, but is it really what I want? And so thinking about like how to enroll people in the kind of world and leading from that place instead of making demands, it's just not successful to make demands. That's really beautiful because we're talking about like the old leadership paradigm of like leading by the whip at pain of death, at pain of being fired from the company. And there's another way of leadership, which is to enroll people. Now, if you have values that are, (laughs) you're trying to enroll people to kill seven-year-olds, that's going to be a difficult sell, right? So I think the other, (laughs) the other part of this is recognizing what your motives are and, and becoming aware of those motives for yourself. I think it's interesting to think of what Snow White represents here because, you know, Snow White is always in every scene you see her, she's surrounded by animals and they're like, she's singing to them. She's talking to them. They're all like really engaging with her. And I think that that is like nature. She's meant to kind of represent nature. And in fact, nature is what the queen is, is railing against. I do not want nature to take me basically to take, to take over my body. And so she tries her best to resist I'm so glad you said that. Do you remember when we watched the movie the other day and there was like this point where she was so scared and like running through the forest and like seeing all of these like imaginary threats and just like running and screaming and thrashing. And then she comes out of it and she's like, oh, well, that was kind of silly. That wasn't necessary. And all the animals were like scared of her. And she was like, oh, okay, well, like, let's be friends now. And she starts singing. And I got like really emotional because I was like, wow. I mean, I guess maybe as a woman, but maybe just a person in general also. But like when I show up like in my emotions, how like unattractive that is and how the animals were like scooting away from her and being like, oh, I don't want to I don't want to be over there versus like when she calms down and she like opens up and she's warm and she's so like sweet and inviting to all these animals. Then they start like coming to her. And it was just for me, it was like a really relevant visual reminder of how I show up in the world really impacts the ability to connect with people and like pull them in and enroll them in my vision and like have connection. It just was like a really purity and kindness being like visually represented and seeing like how that unfolds was just like a really powerful reminder for me. I love it. I, I love that you remember that scene because that's also kind of the distinction between a resourceful and an unresourceful mindset. From that place of fear, which is when she w- shows up, look, understandably, she's afraid. She, she's been taken away from her home and she's by some stranger and she's been dropped, who she trusted, I guess, and she's been dropped into nature. And now he's like, go, run, run, get out of here so I don't have to kill you. And she, now she's seeing in every shadow, in every stump, she's seeing a different threat, right? And from that place, she's, she's screaming, she's thrashing about. And see, what I, I love about this is kind of like the clues to manifestation that we have here, right? When she's showing up from fear and from a fearful place, she's projecting her fear onto the entire world. And then everything else is like seeing this being who is terrifying. <laughs> and so when she calms down and she finds her center and she's like, She's like in that place of peace. That's where all of a sudden she starts to notice that same reality around her. And isn't that beautiful? Yeah. And can I just say, like, I love the 
artistic nature of the representation of that scene so much where there's like a log in the water that actually like looks like an alligator like they just from a from an artistic perspective like they did such a good job representing that and it was really cool to be an adult and appreciate that aspect of it whereas as a kid I didn't like key into like the meaningfulness of like it's not an actual threat it's just perceived threat that she's experiencing Mm, yeah, which is not to say that that's not understandable that she would have that experience of the threat. It's just like a reinterpretation. I love this, too, because we so often we humans were perceiving threats all over the place. And those threats are so often just happening in our minds. And if we can just calm down and find our center, we might be able to reinterpret and reimagine. Because from the point of view where she's surrounded by her community of nature, if she saw that same log, she would probably likely just notice it as the log that it is. Now, the other thing that I think is interesting about this is it's dark. Okay. It's nighttime and there's a storm going on when she's running away. I think maybe I'm misremembering the storm, but it's nighttime. And so just like the darkness is representative of fear in our subconscious, right? Because like, think about going into a dark room. If you've never been in there before and you're in a dark room, like you, you're not going to just go charging around the room. It's likely that you'll be very cautious in how you're moving because you you don't know. But if you turn on the light, all of a sudden it becomes a lot easy even to navigate the room, right? Because now we can see. And so light, you'll you'll see this trope again and again in throughout the the mythic narrative that when it's dark, we have like the dark night of the soul, we're afraid. Everything seems like a threat. But when we turn the light on, when we have light, all of a sudden it's like, oh everything's a little bit more uh, relaxing. Yeah. And I also love that that's the na- in, built into the name of our business, Lucid Shift Coaching. That's like like shining a light on the things, so like they don't really actually have to be so scary. And we like can we can navigate them quite quite skillfully when we just take the time and not be so scared and just shine a little flashlight. Sometimes we can we can change things just by shining a light on them. Yeah. So I think that there's like clues about immortality in all of these myths. I think that's what I'm so interested about about the mythic landscape and and understanding, you know, Joseph Campbell's work, the fact that these things can survive for so long. Stories like the Bible, stories like these these fairy tales, these folk tales that have been around for years and years, the fact that they can survive tells us something about the ability to survive over time. And again, we've got this this queen who, you know, is standing in opposition to nature and wanting to to live forever, to have her beauty be the fairest of the land forever. That's part of our our fundamental human trope. And so I think that these stories, they're like designed to give us clues about what that immortal journey is. Heroes almost always act within their own personal ethic and have to resist against like, you know, like her fears. And she has to like deal with those. But she does it by leading into her community, her nature and finding those animals and those stories. In fact, you can see she only gets into trouble in the story when she's by herself. The dwarves go off to work. And she's left alone. And that's when the witch is able to or the queen is able to, you know, take actions against her to threaten her life. And so looking at the hero as a model or a paradigm of humanity, the interesting thing about like a hero is that they in some ways are a model for us to live a quote unquote good life in the world. Right. I love that she goes into the house of the dwarves and she like immediately cleans What she stands for in some ways is like having a clean, ordered environment. And that's like how she contributes. So she has kind of like two ethics, the community of nature and 
cleanliness and making sure that everything's clean and ordered. And I thought that was just like a really interesting way. Cause she even like before the dwarves can eat dinner, she's like, go, what have you washed up? And they're like, sure. She's like, when did you wash up? They were like last year. <laughs> she's like, go wash your hands. And then there's a whole song about it, you know? Yeah. There, when I was watching the movie, there was something that like tickled me around like the sexist nature of that. And I like, I, I question that, like, is it, it is, is it a sexist thing to say like, Oh, she came in and then she was like, well, I'll clean for you. So let me stay. And that was like how she established her value I guess I want to just like push back on that and like hear what you would say in response to that. Oh, that's that's an interesting question because, well, I would say that she's using the skills because remember, she she was kind of put into sort of slavery from the time she was young by the evil queen because that was like her first punishment was like, you're fairer than I am. So let's put you to work and being a, a scullery maid. So I think part of it is she's she's bringing her skill set and she's like trying to provide value to her community to this place the way that she can. Now, there's an interesting dynamic that has been the case for humanity for most of our, not in recent history, but for most of our history, where there really was this protection and community like dichotomy that exists in nature. And so again, why these things stick around, I think, is because they they speak to things that are that are part of us. But look, like the realm of physical defense, that has never been the realm of women. It has not typically been for all of human history, the realm of women, because our bodies are just built differently. There's also like neurobiological evidence that shows like our hormones are just more like like women are more inclined to tend and befriend as a result, as a, as a response to stress. Whereas men, because they have more testosterone and they think that estrogen is like part of the creation of oxytocin, which is like the cuddle, like commune neurotransmitter hormone. But whereas men, testosterone is more associated with like jumping into action. So that's like the kind of like neurobiological makeup that's going to facilitate something like protection, whereas women would be like, okay, gather everyone together for safety. And so I think actually it's a useful distinction to make here. And I I see this coming up again and again throughout our like exploration of these stories. But the distinction between male and female and masculine and feminine, or if you prefer, yang and yin, because the danger here and why people resist the Disney movie so much when there is that story that we were talking about in the beginning that like they're resisted because of the like the cultural implications or the, the meanings of the stories. I think it's useful because to make this distinction, descriptive versus prescriptive. This is not saying this is how you should be, right? It's saying that this is how things are kind of, this is the describer or how they have tended to be, right? So if you think of like, you know, statistical bell curves, this is just where the averages are. And so it's not to say that you have to be this way or that you should be this way. You be however you want to be, but it's to say that there are these tendencies that happen. And so like, I like to look at these myths more as a a story between of the masculine and the feminine rather than the male and the female and what that can mean because I don't think it's to be prescriptive. I don't say it's like the woman's place is cleaning the house and the man's place is going out and earning the diamonds out in the, in the thing. Right. Um, yeah. Because actually the, the man that the quote unquote wins her heart again, as date rapey as that is in the end of the story, the man who wins is a prince. So he never actually had to work for anything at all. Theoretically. He's just, uh, his only job was to be charming. The people who actually are doing the work, by the way, are the dwarves and try as they might to get her to love them (laughs) the way that they want to be loved. She does not do it in this story, right? Dopey is the classic. Yeah. She gives affection to them, but it's not romantic in nature. 
it's never romantic. They get kisses on the forehead. So interesting. Yeah. Every dwarf gets so a kiss on the forehead as they leave for work. Yeah. Dopey runs around. He tries so hard to kiss her on the lips. Yeah. And she she won't. She won't do that, right? Because each one of these dwarves, and gosh, we I, we don't have time to go into all the symbols and all of the things, but each one of the dwarves, you know, they're they're defined by a characteristic. One single characteristic defines the whole dwarves' existence, right? Sleepy, sneezy, dopey, happy bashful doc like they all have their their one thing that they are like they're like overbalanced in they don't make a whole person together maybe they make a whole person right and they make perhaps a family but they don't make the love interest and i think that's something we could talk about in another episode some other time because it there's more there but i would really love before we end this episode to at least address this idea that snow white at the end gets the prince and that's how the story ends because I think societally a lot of people have a resistance to that story and that that story being perpetuated today like we remember we had a friend who was like I think Disney movies should be R-rated and like for that reason that they're setting little girls up for these unrealistic expectations of life so I think we would be remiss to not at least just address that in this podcast episode yeah here's the narrative that I've heard around this that the whole purpose of a woman's life is to get a man. You know, I think that that narrative is is compelling and that it makes sense to like, to hear that, to see that. Even though I do believe that just like Snow White interprets the log as an alligator, so too it's easy to, to map our own fears, insecurities, uncertainties onto whatever we're seeing. Because another telling of this story is actually like the hero of this story is not the prince. He doesn't even show, he shows up at the very beginning and at the very end of this story. And that's it. And in the Grimm's story, he like literally has one cameo where he shows up and basically captures the <laughs> He's like, hey, dwarves, can I buy your, can I buy your dead body? I don't think <laughs> anyway. he buys her. <laughs> anyway, that's just the way that it seems like in my mind. But uh, these opinions are not endorsed by Disney. <laughs> so you have this situation where... Actually, she is the hero of the story, and she is the evidence of kind of the path to immortality that we have in this story. And so her community and her cleaning and like her organizing life and making sure that the, the home is a safe, warm place, that's the clues that we get about what success looks like in life from Snow White. Not sitting around waiting for a, a although, in fact, because in the beginning, she is sitting around waiting for a prince. She's like singing into the wishing well. She's like, someday my, my love will find me, right? And it's only from going out and having an adventure in life that she becomes ready for that even. Because remember, she like sits there wishing and then the prince comes over and he's like, I love you. And she's like, oh no. And she runs away from him, right? Because she hasn't braved the wilderness yet. She has not braved the wilderness yet. Yeah, exactly. So she has to, like, go into the world to, like, develop the kind of bravery that would be necessary to then be in relationship with somebody. Yeah, and even to develop herself, right? Like, she has to go out and, like, make other, like, platonic relationships. She has to go out and, like, brave the wilderness and find herself. She has to go out and make her community and, like, express herself into the world the way that she wants to express herself into the world, right? Before she's even ready for it. Now... (laughs) There's something there that in Sleeping Beauty and Snow White, the prince finds them asleep. Okay, that's there's something there. And we'll explore that, I think, in another one. Maybe we'll do, you know, a collection of stories where (laughs) the prince finds the hero in some state of 
inability to resist, but <laughs> right? I, I, I like I don't know what's there yet, but uh, but I do think this is interesting. So, any closing thoughts, Paige? Anything that you wanted to mention in this before we we wrap? No, I think I think we covered all the big ones. This was a really fun conversation. I and I know mean, we've talked about this story before. We've talked about lots of Disney movies before, and I think even in this conversation, some really new cool awarenesses came out of it for both of us. So that was really really fun. Great. Well, thanks for having the conversation, and I look forward to the next time when we talk about Pinocchio. (laughs) Thanks so much for listening to the Shift to Freedom podcast. If you want to get the most out of your time here, think about this. What's the one thing from this episode that resonated the most for you? Asking that simple question can help anchor in your insights and remember who you want to be. If there was even a single thought in today's episode that helps you to become even 1% more free, then we are thrilled. If so, would you do us a favor? We're on a mission to spread the message of freedom and we could use your help. See, the algorithms love it when we get reviews, shares, comments, and likes, and then that helps other people like you to find the podcast and just maybe change their lives. So if you like what we're doing and you want to generate some positive karma for the day, please write us a review wherever you get your podcast love. See you next week. And in the meantime, live your freedom and love your life.